This is an ABC podcast. High-tech farming is a very modern thing. Or is it? If you think about it, technology has long played a significant role in the practice of agriculture. The plough, for instance, was a tech breakthrough way back when. And farmers have been cross-breeding crop varieties for thousands of years, long before somebody invented the term genetic modification. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Today on the program, we'll explore the relationship between farming and technology, between promise and practical application. And we'll start here, at a research farm in Victoria's Gippsland region. The Ellenbank Smart Farm is about a 230 hectare dairy farm. We milk up to 450 cows, offer an effective grazing area of about 170 hectares. So it is a pasture-based dairy system, typical of uh, over 90% of the Australian dairy industry. That's Joe Jacobs, the research director at Ellenbank, and he set the goal of turning his facility into the world's first carbon-neutral dairy. But it's not just about producing green milk, so to speak. It's about helping farmers to understand their options moving forward. What we're trying to achieve at the Ellenbank Smart Farm is is basically have a research facility that enables the fast tracking of innovative technology solutions for the dairy industry. And by that, I mean it's an opportunity for us to de-risk bringing multiple technologies together and show farmers how they may or may not integrate with each other. If I think back 15, 20 years ago, we probably tackled research questions in isolation to each other. So we might look at a particular, let's say a feeding supplement and how well it it worked for production purposes. We didn't necessarily consider, could we optimise the use of that supplement by changing the farming system? And if we change the farming system, what would be the, the unintended consequences? What would be the economics of doing that? And I think as research, as demonstration extension has matured, we've started to look to integrate multiple questions together and understand their combined impact on the farming system. This development of a carbon neutral smart farm is doing exactly that. It's taking existing technologies, it's taking emerging technologies, it's taking cutting edge, not quite ready for industry technologies and looking to see how they all complement and work together or if in fact, some are antagonistic to others. The Ellenbank approach involves adjusting energy usage and rethinking the types of cattle raised and what they're fed. Primarily, it's about driving down the amount of methane the cows belch out while they're eating. The main way is to reduce what the cows produce, whether that's through feed additives, whether it's through genetic improvement, so identifying a cohort of animals that have got particular traits to inherently produce less methane than others. And we know there's a a wide range in methane emissions from an animal that on face value, they look the same. 
So some in vitro studies, so that's lab-based studies, have shown with these new emerging additives up to a 98% reduction in methane. Now, when they've been preliminarily tested in very controlled mixed ration feedlot type environments, they've shown anything from 30 to 70% reduction in methane. And the variation is primarily due to different feeding rates, different activity of the specific compounds within those additives. By reducing the enteric methane down significantly, and given that's over 60% of total greenhouse gas emissions, that's a huge inroad into achieving that carbon neutrality target. So methane's one issue. Another issue is the technology that's used on the farm and trying to make that carbon neutral as well. Tell us about that. So there's two examples there. Let's take the energy use on a dairy farm. So in our situation, that's primarily grid power. So coal-based power station, electricity, and some gas use and some diesel use around the farm. So what we're looking at doing, and we're partway through implementing this, we've just installed a 99.8 kilowatts of solar panels and a 100 kilowatt hour battery system. In the middle of summer this year, so in February, that was supplying 43% of our energy requirements at peak. So it's well on the way to offsetting the grid energy use. Given that we're also about demonstrating how we combine and integrate multiple options together, we're just in the process of establishing a traditional horizontal wind power supply, so the classic windmill, and also a vertical helical system, which is the, the more novel approach. Both of those are relatively small, will only supply about 10 to 15 kilowatt hours for the farm use, but they're demonstrating other technologies. Given we're in quite a uh, hilly environment here in Gippsland, we've also taken the opportunity to set up a small hydro system. So utilising gravity-fed water going downhill to run a small water turbine to create another 5 to 10 kilowatts of power and then use a small solar system to pump that back up. So pumping up is cost neutral, utilising the solar, but generates energy for us. In the longer run, we're also looking at putting a significant additional array of solar panels on um, a number of the buildings. So ultimately get up to about 400 kilowatts of solar, which will not only cover our own requirement, but then either put energy back into the grid as an offset or supply that to our office facilities that are on another part of the property. Now, Ellen Bank is a test facility. Can the the measures that you're talking about putting in place to bring carbon levels right down, can they be replicated easily by other dairy farmers? Given, I imagine, there's, you know, there are initial costs in terms of setup. You're right there that the challenge is that we're putting in a multitude of technologies, which is highly likely that uh, the average farmer may not want to implement all of those, either from a risk perspective or a cost perspective. What we can do is really um, show the inherent challenges, opportunities, risks and costs associated with each of the technologies in their own right, but then look at the potential synergistic effects of combining multiple technologies together. We're talking about a dairy farm, but I would imagine that the lessons learnt from this would apply to all types of farming or to various types of farming. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, whether it's a, a beef farm or a sheep farm, both of those have ruminants, i.e. sheep or dairy or cattle, I should say. So the principles around feed additives, as an example, would apply. The same principles would apply around alternate energy generation. 
there are a whole range of technologies and solutions in the marketplace, either mature, early stage offering, or even at people's kitchen tables being developed. But where the real missing piece is, is in the way you integrate it all together and use it to assist in making business decisions. So how you tie business rules to the flow of data. So really, it's a process of integration that we're really focusing on. Professor David Lamb runs another agricultural research facility, this time in Wagga Wagga in rural New South Wales. It's called the Global Digital Farm. The question of viability is not just around the financial cost. What also feeds into viability is the digital literacy or the confidence of the user. And that's one of the remaining festering sores in the ag tech revolution in this country. And that is the confidence of our producers to actually take the step and invest in and then deploy and ultimately get value from using the technology or the generated data flows. And of course, it's hard not to get wrapped around that axle of telecommunications because, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to connect up a farm and have sensors creating data and that data flowing, the simplest thing to do is to have a mobile SIM card in every device and use that wonderful invisible connectivity mechanism above us, which is a mobile phone network. But of course, we don't have that outside of transportation corridors and urban and regional centres, etc. So there are other technology solutions available, but they require a lot more bandwidth, mental bandwidth to get your head around to make sure the product's optimised. Is it really working for you? And obviously, there's a lot of investment at stake. So it's hard to talk about viability without including confidence, which is fed by digital literacy and the strength of advisor and mentoring networks to make it happen. And why is there that lack of confidence then? Look, it's experience. We've got producers out there. I mean, Australia led the world in precision agriculture for many, many years and still making serious inroads because our farming systems are the most challenging in the world. We've got that vanguard of producers that are showing the way on how to do things, but we're now dealing with the centre of the scene, mass of our production systems, you know, the middle population, the ones that are trying to learn with what they've got at hand, but ultimately when it comes to reaching into their wallet or actually physically and also operationally adopting these systems into their complex management systems, that's where the challenge is. So, you know, we've got an appetite to develop. We've got evidence of leading the world in how we develop, but it's just getting the masses across the line. And going back to that issue of telecommunications, I mean, the national broadband network that's been rolled out in Australia was meant, as I understood it, as many people understood it, to deal with these kinds of issues. Are you saying that it's not useful for farmers in trying to implement the sort of approach that you're talking about? It is absolutely critical to it. And so, yes, it is useful. But when we're talking national broadband network, and certainly in relation to agri-food production, we're talking about backhaul. In other words, connecting the farmhouse, the farm office to the outside world, to the internet. That's an absolutely critical ingredient of getting our farms connected. But it's how you get the data from around that farming landscape back to the gateway, which is your farmhouse, and out to the outside world. Now, every premise has only allocated one satellite dish for SkyMaster, for example, if that's what you're aiming for. So if I wanted to get everything from my farm back into my farmhouse and out through that gateway, I've got to work out how on earth am I going to connect these devices. Now, if I had mobile phone network, I could put a SIM card in each and suddenly they could all be sending their data directly to the cloud. But at the end of the day, the majority of our producers don't have mobile coverage across their farming landscapes like we have across our towns and in our cities. So there has to be terrestrial or on-ground solutions alternatives. And that's where the complexity is. So the NBN has addressed the need to connect premises 
including farm buildings, farm offices, but not our broader farmscapes. The person whom you're trying to reach is currently unavailable. Please leave a message after the beep. Hello, William. How's that? That work? <laughs> yep. Can you hear me? Yeah. How you going? Good. And yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Sorry about that. Saw him. I was just on a phone call and missed the reminder. So He's I'm an inventor as farm. well as a farmer, and he lives in a particularly remote area of Australia. His name is William Harrington. Yeah, so I'm on a, a cattle station called Olga Downs, and we're north of a small town called Richmond, which is about halfway between Townsville and Mount Isa in northwest Queensland. So we run cattle, cattle on the station, and really great place to live, really good place to raise our family and our kids, and connectivity is what really lets us stay here. But that connectivity, as David Lamb pointed out earlier, is an ongoing drama if you're trying to run a modern farm. Oh, it's a huge problem. Whilst things have improved somewhat with the, the latest NBN satellite service, the service still lacks the capacity to download lots and lots of information due to download limits. And also the latency is a bit of an issue. So the, the amount of time it takes to send a signal to the satellite and back leads to a bit of a delay, which can make VPNs, for example, like people working away from home or trying to connect to their university can have a lot of trouble with that. It really just makes it a not the best experience. So frustrations, but there are also opportunity costs in that, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. I know many of the stations that we've hooked up have been desperate for some sort of solution. Like They're trying to attract staff. They're trying to educate their children. They're trying to have access to the same services that people have in the city, but they're simply not able to get it. And as the world population grows, the new tools, production methods and efficiencies gained by things like water monitoring technology and other ag tech devices are going to be critical to be able to produce the amount of food that we need to. And you're trying to compete against other countries who have access to better services. It can be difficult. Australia really has a double whammy of large distances and low population, so it makes it really hard. So the solution William Harrington devised was to set up a new business and become his own internet service provider. Yeah, so we decided to set up a wireless link from Richmond, which is about 46 kilometres away, to our station. And really fortunate that I had the technical skills to do that. It helped a lot, but it was transformational to our business and to our lives in the station. All of a sudden, we weren't at a disadvantage anymore. We had equitable access, the same as someone in the city would have. The business grew very organically at the start. We had our, a couple of the neighbouring stations said, look, we've got the same problem, can you help us? And to be able to access the connectivity, the actual backhaul connectivity, they call it, to the internet that we could then use to, to provide to the, the cattle stations, we had to connect into the big fibre optic cable that runs through town, which is quite expensive. So we had to make a call. Are we going to do this or not? So we thought, let's, we're going to give it a go, and we were able to work with the local council. They've been absolutely fantastic. They came on as a customer, and the business has grown, and we cover about an area by the end of this year, which will be something like 100,000 square kilometres. We're looking at about 100 cattle stations. So these are quite remote, a lot of these. But by providing this service to them, we've been able to give them access to the same type of internet connectivity you would have on the coast. So we're not trying to provide something better. We're just trying to provide the same. 
people are starting or the producers are starting to adopt new technology now because they don't need to be scared about using all their data. They're, they're more willing to have a go and try some new things. And that's that's been fantastic for their businesses. It's helped them grow. Economies of scale, how do you keep the cost manageable for farmers, given that you're a small provider? The commercial reality is it's really difficult. Like We're trying to provide a, an essential service to these farmers and graziers in remote areas. And to do that, we've got to build lots of infrastructure. We've got lots of kilometres to travel. But we think we've been able to come up with a combination of technology and a business model that lets us do that. But you're right, it's, it's hard. Just walk us through that technology. So for our customers, we provide what they call fixed wireless. So we build, in essence, microwave towers. Now, our towers aren't quite as big as a lot of the ones that you see in a town. And the reason is that that microwave tower might be servicing two or three customers rather than 50 or 60. But by keeping the cost of the towers down, we've been able to deploy more of them which then allows us to cover more area and service more people. And all of that then comes back into Richmond, where we've got all the infrastructure that makes it work, all the equipment, and then into the big fibre optic cables that run through our town. Earlier this year, you were awarded a Fulbright scholarship to visit the United States in 2022. What are you hoping to achieve with that opportunity? Yeah, that's an absolutely incredible opportunity. I'm really, really passionate about trying to provide equitable access to regional areas to the internet. And as part of that, I'm studying a PhD at JCU, James Cook University, and was fortunate enough to receive a Fulbright. So I'm hoping, depending on how the world goes, I'd like to head over to the US early, mid next year. And I'd like to look at how and learn about how they're solving this problem in regional and rural areas in the United States. They recognise it as a problem and they've got a couple of solutions and hopefully I can learn from that and try and bring them back here and, and help improve the situation for Australians in remote areas. William Harrington speaking to me there from Olga Downs, his cattle station in Outback Queensland. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. We've heard about the promise of technology and some of the problems using it in a wealthy country like Australia. Well, technology is also playing a role in modernising agricultural practices in the developing world. Over the past few decades, organisations like AGRA, the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa, have invested heavily in promoting technology solutions for poor and small-scale farmers. But according to new research from Dr James Bofu in Ghana and Professor Kristen Lyons at the University of Queensland, many such measures have not only failed, they've made an already desperate situation worse. The decision to take up these agricultural innovations, if you like, is not always one that is easy for farmers to make. So farmers talk about a real alliance of interest that is driving this idea that they must modernise, that they must engage with these technologies. So it becomes quite difficult not to engage with them that we see, for example, that they're being heavily promoted by chemical distributors and other, you know, farm input providers locally. We see demonstration farms, we see radio programs. So there's a really strong advocacy messaging that this will be a a positive thing to do on your farm. So I guess that's a bit of context in which farmers are navigating and making these decisions. 
Many of the farmers that James talked to, for example, and he spoke to farmers in the Brongahafo region, which is in central Ghana. And this is, I think it's important to understand that this is a real food basket for Ghana. It grows a significant volume of local food that feeds into the local market for Ghana. And so what many of the farmers described is that the uptake of agricultural chemicals and hybrid seeds is further locking farmers into the market, including for the purchase of these inputs, but also it orients farmers towards then growing monoculture production. So rather than growing a mixed diversity of food crops that can be both consumed locally, but also sold on the local market, Increasingly, these technological innovations drive farmers towards scaling up and also increasingly growing just single crop species. And has that increased indebtedness? Because we're talking about smallholder farmers, reasonably poor farmers, aren't we? Yeah, there's profound economic and ecological dimensions to this. So for sure, this is locking farmers into a requirement to then buy these inputs, buying seeds that they would have otherwise been able to save from their own local varieties, but also buying those those inputs. And this creates all sorts of problems. It's also increasingly locking farmers out of securing access to land because as farmers are increasingly seeking to generate income so that they can buy these inputs, they are renting any spare land that they might have. Whereas previously they might have had, you know, long histories of sharing land and sharecropping in Ghana, including in the Brongahafo region. Um, but increasingly farmers are forced to rent out land in order to generate an income. So this again bears down on the kind of challenge of food security and being able to feed, uh, you know, at the household level. But there's really big ecological dimensions to this as well. And so many of the farmers described the ways in which local seed varieties, including seed varieties that they have saved and cultivated over many, many generations on the basis of them being having high nutrition levels, um, being excellent in terms of the capacity to be stored, which is really important from a local household provisioning, being able to store your food over the long term is vitally important. These are disappearing. So they describe local seed varieties going extinct as these so-called improved varieties are taking over these ecologies and local landscapes and displacing and disappearing these local varieties. And is that therefore a problem in terms of crop resilience, that the seeds that have been proven over time to suit a specific area are no longer being used? Absolutely. And this is the language that farmers themselves are using to describe the ecological and agronomic challenges that that they now face. But also importantly, many farmers are talking about the changes in the wet season, the longer dry conditions. And so the need to have access to diverse varieties of seeds freely available is vital. And these things are disappearing before their eyes. And, And this is something that many farmers talk about in very concerned ways. But if, as I understand from looking at your report, if yields are actually up, isn't that what's important? Isn't that the ultimate goal? 
This question of yields is really debated. So in some instances, some farmers do talk about an increase in yields. But I think we need to remember all around the world, there is not one monolithic farmer experience. And so in this region, we see a lot of diversity in terms of farm size, the level of income that farmers have access to buy inputs. And so for many farmers, particularly smaller farmers, farmers on smaller sized land areas, but also those who are poorer, they're not seeing increased productivity because they are not able to purchase the other agricultural chemical inputs that would go with the seed in order to maximise productivity. And so it sets in a kind of structural inequality, if you like, that only those farmers big enough and rich enough may be able to realise those benefits. And, And so this is where I think we have to go back to those earlier claims that are being made by advocates of these technologies that this was set about to address the fundamental challenge of poverty and hunger, particularly on the African continent. And those most vulnerable through the research that we have conducted in Ghana are not getting any benefits that might be realised from this technology in regards to both poverty or alleviating hunger. So we've talked about the problems. How can we transform agriculture? How can it be reimagined in a setting like Ghana, for instance? What I think the work that James and many others who continue to be on the ground in Ghana engaged in this work show really clearly is the the ways in which local farmers, local community groups, farming groups, cooperatives and so on are driving and leading visions for what food sovereignty might look like. And, And so this is thinking about and practicing food systems that are decarbonizing, so are reducing industrial inputs that have heavy embodied energy, thinking about and engaging in practices that centre fair and ethical trade, so fair trades for farmers, fair incomes for farmers. And so, you know, the great challenge is the kinds of structural inequalities that make it very difficult for farmers in Ghana to secure fair trade with international markets. So whilst I'm not saying it should just be about local and regional markets, these have a really important role to play in terms of ensuring that farmers can have bargaining power and can have say in, you know, bargaining for a fair price in relation to what they receive on the market for their produce. These things become heavily distorted in global markets. So why hasn't an organisation like the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, why hasn't that organisation picked up on this need to actually be more responsive, I guess you'd say, to local needs and local conditions and local economic circumstances? It's absolutely baffling. The level of investment, this alliance has invested upwards of a billion dollars across the African continent, but they have also received phenomenal subsidies from various African governments. So the scale of investment, it is so incongruous with with local needs on the ground. And I think, again, we just have to look to the orientation of this alliance and its economic agenda, I think, is quite clear that the rhetoric is there absolutely about seeking to meet the needs of local communities but the challenge remains in terms of them actually understanding what local needs might be but i think too that the alliance has very clear agenda that is around modernizing agriculture there's these assumptions that technological innovation including through the uptake of agricultural chemicals and improved seed varieties is 
part and parcel of modernizing agriculture. This is so institutionalized and normalized. The idea is that farmers must integrate into global export markets. It's part of a broader you know, if you like, neoliberal, withdrawing the state and state-based systems of agriculture. This is part of modernising agriculture in Ghana. So this is the sort of policy agenda. But of course, as I said earlier, the alliance has been really influential in terms of shaping national policies. You know, more than half of the budget of the Ministry of Agriculture and Food in Ghana is paid for through the alliance. So it's been able to shape the policy settings, you know, in which agricultural change takes place. And it has a particular entrenched view about what appropriate development looks like. Reassessing the second green revolution and how it sold. Professor Kristen Lyons from the University of Queensland. And in looking at the possibilities and challenges for data-driven agriculture, we heard from Professors Joe Jacobs and David Lamb, as well as farmer William Harrington. Go to the Future Tense website if you want more details. I'm Anthony Fennell. My colleague and co-producer is Karen Savanovitz. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.